the normal <coughs> state of the mind before we look into it is wild. Everyone's mind is wild. <coughs> no matter how responsible a position you hold, maybe you're the head of something, president of something, perhaps bringing up five children, ten children, maybe you're a general or a surgeon. When you come to retreats like this, certainly at the beginning, uh, it's hard to escape the fact that the mind is wild and changeable. It's happy one moment, then it's unhappy, then it's calm, then it's restless. And the body goes along with that very closely. The bodily states also keep changing. The practice we've been doing since last evening is one central aspect of vipassana practice called samadhi, samadhi bhavana, the development of a calm and concentrated mind. And so an important aspect of that training is the pacification of a mind that by now I hope you understand is quite wild. And also that it's normal. You're not being singled out. All of our minds are like this. The practice of samadhi, which is usually translated in English as concentration, which is a perfectly good word, and it certainly gets at one aspect of what this training is about, but yet can be very misleading and convey an attitude that I think undermines what we're attempting to develop here. Sometimes, perhaps you don't, but for some of us, when you hear the word concentration, we know that's valuable. You need concentration to do most anything in life. And from the lower grades on, teachers have been telling us to we're not concentrated enough or pay attention. So there's nothing new about that. But it also has a certain coldness to it sometimes, and especially when it becomes uh, presented in the form of a technique. It can be taken on a bit like a Nintendo game or a video game. Breath comes in, breath goes out. There it is. There it goes. There it is. There it goes. There it, oh, I missed that one. <laughs> and so many other things in the society it's becoming like a root metaphor and that misses a lot of what it's about and what I'd like to this evening is to go into that a bit Actually, following the breath is a very, can be a very joyful and rich experience. But it's part of a general attitude, really, towards life itself, how precious life is. It has to do with respect. And I would say, if I had any, if I had to reduce our practice to one short phrase, I would say it has to do with respect, infinite respect. Almost scratch out almost. There's no limit to the challenges that come along when we're not respectful, meaning we're inattentive or more obvious ways, not fully appreciating this precious gift of life in whatever form it may be expressing itself to us right now. Okay, we'll come into that. The mind is wild at the beginning. It seems to alternate a good deal between being very excited and being dull. And then it's excited again, and then it's dull and sleepy. 
Now and then we have a patch of clarity, and those patches of clarity grow. Um, Seen in the context of our practice, and in order to give you some sense of the significance of samadhi practice, you have to understand uh, more of what will come in the week, and of course, years to come in this practice. Uh, For those of you here for for the weekend, uh, you can get a taste of some of it, but uh, certain aspects can't possibly be dealt with in very much depth in a weekend. But you can get at least an inkling of where this is all heading. The simple practice of remembering to turn to the breathing. That is, you've been given a teaching. On our own, we would not particularly value conscious breathing. We just go about our life. However, a teaching has intervened. And I said, this it can be very useful to set aside some time and go back to the breath over and over and over and over again in the face of all these many preoccupations that the mind throws up. Okay, they say it's important, I'll do it. Maybe you've read it in a book. Is the Buddha in back of us vouching for what we're saying? But still, a lot of it is on faith. And so you do need a little bit of teaching, perhaps some reflection. You hear, we hear the verbal teaching, words which tell us what to do. Those words more and more are remembered. And so the mind more and more forms an intention to turn to the breath. It could be in any other any number of other places. It's had a lot of practice. All the things that have come up in your mind just in this one day, all the objects of attachment, aversion, and so forth. But instead we're saying, trade all of that in. Some of it is so rich, all that juicy suffering that we love so much. And the fantasies and fixing up conversations that we're going to have when we get off the retreat and finally say it the right way. And that person's in the mind and we get it right and it's a good feeling. And then there's the past and he said and she said and he said and she said. And the mind constantly talking to itself about itself. About how it's not doing so well, how it's doing wonderfully. Trying to convince itself of what? That's the big question. So we remember, and more and more we do turn to the breath. It's called right intention. It's part of the Noble Eightfold Path. For those of you who have read a bit more of Buddhism. And then there's the question of once we turn to the breath, there's a question of sticking. Granted, we've aimed our energy towards the breathing. We've remembered to do it. The verbal teaching got translated into an intention, the intention into an action. And then if there's the samadhi is the sticking to it and the mindfulness is the noticing, is the seeing each breath as it comes and goes and all those work together. Sometimes we just lump it all together and just say be mindful. Remember to turn to the breath and stay there. Now, if you keep doing, if you keep doing this very simple operation that is exchanging all the many options you have, all these mind events that we could latch on to and become part of. But more and more, letting it all go. It's a kind of renunciation because some of it is pleasurable. As you do that, the gaps between conscious breaths become fewer. That is your able to stick with breathing in a more continuous way. Moreover, when you depart from the breathing, when the mind leaves the breath, an alarm goes off. You notice it more quickly. Perhaps you're starting to even see some of that already. 
And so even though the mind leaves the breathing, it doesn't leave for 10 minutes anymore or 10 hours. It leaves for perhaps 10 seconds because we, we remember that this is not what we decided to do. What we decided to do was to be with each in-breath and each out-breath. And then more and more, we start living in accordance with what we intended. That's a good feeling. You're doing what you say you want to do. As that process starts to take shape, and this is lawful, many, many people have experienced it, including people in this room. The mind, the breath starts to become uh, more fine. It starts to calm down, it can become uh, deeper, smoother. You can perhaps feel the entry and exit of the breathing through the nostril through the nostrils start to become more free. Entering and exiting is not, not obstructed. And without even cultivating it, you might feel a spontaneous joy and peace to just be breathing in some air. This can be very joyful. It's another way of saying that you're conscious of the fact that you're alive. And much of the time we aren't. We're so busy preparing for this and so forth that we are not aware of the precious moments of life which only happen in the present moment. That's why we dwell on it so much here. As this happens, the mind becomes more peaceful. It fills up with a certain happiness. Even bliss, you could call it. feels more spacious. These are just words to kind of indicate something. Definitely feels healing. Definitely feels nourishing. Definitely feels refreshing. We feel stronger. Something about there's a stability that comes as the mind becomes stable. We feel that it spreads throughout our being. It also becomes more supple. And as we are with the breath, in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, in a much more continuous way, we can feel the body follow. As the mind becomes happier by being with the breathing, the body starts to become naturally much more calm you'll find that you can sit more comfortably for longer periods of time. Sometimes quite surprising. Because the breath is a very powerful conditioner. Or as the breath is a powerful force. Just think about it. What we call life was set in motion when we start to breathe. And if you breathe in and breathe out and then you don't breathe in again, we call that death. So here is this energy that we are literally hanging on by a thread. Much of the time we don't really pay attention to it. We're not aware of, the, of what it is. We don't really know the, the world of the breath. We know a lot of other things rather well. As the breath starts to change, as the quality of the breathing starts to change, and have you experienced any of that in the just about a day now that you've been practicing? As you're more mindful of the breathing, the quality of the breathing changes. And as the quality of the breathing changes, it affects the quality of the mind and the quality of the body. If the breath becomes very soft and smooth and peaceful, you may find that the body quite naturally becomes more relaxed, more supple, and your mood changes. It's a little like if you're cold. You come in out of the cold and you have a, uh, a hot cup of something to drink 
as the warm fluids go down the body, into the body, you can feel the whole body start to warm up and, and the mind becomes happier too. It's not so unhappy about being cold. So the breath is situated in a very interesting way between the mind and the body and it conditions both of them very powerfully. And so we have uh, an indirect way of working with the mind and the body. That is, if, and it's very simple. It is as the breath becomes conscious. We're already breathing. All we're adding is we're making it conscious now. The breath goes through quite a bit of change as it becomes more conscious. And as it does, quite naturally, we can feel everything, the quality of our life improve. We feel happy. Now, what it takes is the willingness to come back to the breathing time and time again, the ability to let go of the many other juicy projects that the mind has set up. And as you know, it's, it's not handed to us. We have to learn how to do that, how to disengage. It's a bit like switching channels. Now, something that can help, I, I'm saying these things in a way I'm setting you up for suffering, but I'm also going to tell you I can't help it. I'm not trying to do that. That is, now you're finding out, I, I assume you, you assumed, there must be some really good reason, and I'm also speaking a lot to the people who are very new to the practice. There must be some really good reason for sitting here you know, hour after hour, you know, following this breath and the bell rings and we stop and three conscious breaths and it's going to go on. It's going to pick up in intensity if you stay here. And perhaps you've read a little. And now you can hear that this really does go somewhere. But then now, if the mind becomes greedy and it tries to get to that bliss and doesn't get it after following, trying to follow three breaths, and then starts to suffer because it feels like it's a failure or you're doing it wrong or maybe this is all nonsense. It's just some propaganda. We're trying to turn a quick dollar here. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> that one I'm pretty confident about. <laughs> See, because otherwise, why would you have motivation or interest? to switch over to the breath. It's so much easier to just suffer along the old way with the old preoccupations, like an old shoe, an old comfortable outfit that's tattered but comfortable. Now, one other way to help to develop a, a, an interest, because effort is a very important factor in the Eightfold Path, and it's sometimes called joyous effort. It's a term I prefer. And in this context, what that means is taking joy in practicing concentration and practicing samadhi. That, can you believe this, that there are people, some of them are in this room, who can sit for hours on end following their breath with little smiles on their face, just so happy. And there's a world crying out for things to be done out there, all kinds of people to be met and you know, jobs to get and all kinds of things, triumphs that are just waiting and the person just sits there, legs folded, or some, something like that, and keenly interested in each breath. It's, it's not a Nintendo game. It's not just some narrow concentration to just kind of tick off how many uh, breaths in a row you're able to follow. It's not setting an Olympic record for not missing a breath. Been here for 17 hours, I haven't missed one breath yet. That will land us a job in the circus. <laughs> or, you know, there must be some amateur show or something. That... But actually, one of the things that can help is this appreciation of just the simplicity of each in-breath and each out-breath. 
Again, I'm using words to talk about it to kind of prompt us into what finally is an unprompted experience. It's an actual experience. Something about the full, uninterrupted acknowledgement of being alive in this moment, just simply breathing, is quite fulfilling, and it's for a good reason. It's not mysterious, really. Just that we have everything turned around. Other ways to gain some perspective so that this samadhi practice can flourish for all of us. From time to time, you may want to use reflection, which is also a very good practice. It's not, reflection is not exactly paying attention to the breath in a given moment, but more reflecting on something that we've noticed. But the reflection is based on actual observation, in this case. Actual experience with the breath as we become more and more familiar with the world of the breathing. For example, if you look at the mind for a while, and perhaps you can even you even know the answer to this in, the, in re- retrospectively, as you know what went on this afternoon, you can reflect and say, well, just what comes of all of this when I don't when I'm not with the breathing, running after this and running after that. That is getting caught up in this preoccupation or that preoccupation. Much of it. Something in the past, which is over. Perhaps some sorrow from the past. Very common for all of us. And that comes up again in the, on the retreat. Or perhaps it's the future. We're anticipating something, worried about something, frightened about something. Now... <clears throat> The breath is happening right in the moment and it's designed to, in a sense, switch the channel or short circuit that tendency to get caught up in the stuff of the past and the stuff of the future. Old stuff, stuff that's gone, done with really, and stuff that's not here, our imagination as to what will happen to us. And by coming back to each breath, what we're doing is in a sense, switching the channel from, if you're worried, from channel worrying to channel breath. It's like taking the needle off a phonograph. Those old, remember those antiquarian and ancient times? Take the needle off and very gently so you don't scratch it. It's a rare record. You don't want to hear it again anymore. It's going around and round and round. as you begin to see just how the mind spends its time in the mind, seeing what it runs after, what it's preoccupied with, so much of it does not lead to peace, does not lead to fulfillment. I know that there are times where things surface in the mind, we latch onto them, and we are happy. A nice fantasy, a very nice memory, a reflection. No one's denying that. But overall, if you check the mind, you'll see that so much of the way it spends its time. So many of the preoccupations don't really make much sense in the light of wisdom or intelligence. Something is going to happen in three or four days and we keep rehearsing over and over and over and over again. And we can't do anything about it until those three or four days. And yet the mind will go around and around. I don't think I have to catalog all of this. You probably know it as well as I do, that at least some, and it's not small, of the mind's endeavors don't produce, produce peace, don't produce joy, don't produce happiness. You could say that a good deal of suffering is having unwanted thoughts. That's why when we're asleep without dreams, we're, we're happy. There's no past, there's no future, there's just now. And so much of the mind is filled with unwanted thoughts. Some equivocation, some conflict, some uncertitude. 
Okay, as we begin to see that, not in a judgmental way, but just begin to observe it carefully, this is what my mind actually does. This, this practice has everything to do with self-understanding, self-inquiry. Know thyself, a very ancient Western value. And now let's switch. If we reflect on that and see that just as a fact. And now what happens if you're able to, let's say, be with breathing? Let's say you're with, I don't like to quantify it, but just to communicate. Let's say you're with the breath for five minutes in a fairly uninterrupted way. And you feel a certain peace and a certain joy. Many of you have experienced that, and those of you who knew will. You begin to notice, oh, that's interesting. Just being with the in-breath and the out-breath, and look how I feel. I actually feel peaceful, happy to be here, just appreciate being alive. And all I'm doing is sitting doing nothing. Hmm. Now let's see what happens when I don't do that. Okay, change it. Now we'll go back to our old practice, preoccupation. And just let the mind rehearse and plan and worry and all the rest of it. Oh, you may begin to see that it's not a bad trade. The exchange, at least temporarily, it's not to say that thought has no value. Thought is extremely important. But as we begin to see that a lot of where our energy is going is actually not working out so well, and that as we learn this new skill, this ability to simply be, because we're using the breath to just be, to just be right there in the moment consciously. That that has some fulfillment and some value. Then quite naturally, the interest in the breath, the interest in samadhi work, of course, will grow. And that is enhanced as the fruit comes from the practice. As more and more you begin to experience happiness that comes out of samadhi. Now, the way to that happiness is not by lusting after the happiness, because that just produces the same old suffering. In other words, if you keep, now you've heard this, and if your mind wants to get those wonderfully calm states, then it's a new way to suffer that you didn't have before you came here, and you actually were foolish enough to pay for got a new way to suffer. I just want to have calmness all the time. <laughs> when I don't get it, I brood and I feel inferior. And it's the same dynamic, whether it's money, sex, power, food, fame, anything. Anything. If we go about it that way, because we don't own life, because everything is uncertain, because everything is changing, we're bound to run into a lot of problems. And so the way to that peace, for the breath to become such a source of steadiness, of fulfillment in life, is to simply take each breath at a time, much as we've been saying. So the breath is an end in itself. Just to breathe consciously is an end in itself. And some of the wonderful benefits that come from it, including health benefits, come from our ability not to run after peace, but simply to be with what is, simply to be with the breath as it happens in the moment. And that's the training. That's what provides the dynamic energy that moves us, not trying to move ourselves, but just being with each breath just as it is. Um, the first time uh, I started to taste some real happiness and peace and joy from this practice and I was receiving it in the context of the total teaching that is it's important for you to understand and for those of you here for, for the weekend much of this may simply be verbal that even the joy and the peace that we develop in the samadhi practice, wonderful as that is and beneficial as that is, 
itself becomes a form of suffering if we get attached to it. And short circuits the real reason that we're here, which is to develop the kind of seeing that is deep and penetrating wisdom. Finally, it's the wisdom that sets us free. It's understanding. It's wisdom that brings with it a kind of love that has substance to it, that's really strong because it's based on something real. And wisdom, as I'm describing it, uh, in one of the discussion groups we went through this, some of the wisdom is we already have access to it. If you've never heard of meditation, each one of us has some wisdom. We know we put our hand in the fire, we get burned, we don't do that after a while. But there's a level of wisdom. The insights are such subtle objects. For example, insight into emptiness. No doubt many of you have heard that. Emptiness of self. The levels of impermanence that can be seen, these are very subtle objects. And the only way they can be seen is if the mind itself becomes that supple. It has to become that subtle so that it can perceive into the nature of itself at that level. It's like being given an electronic microscope. Now, so that one mode of training that we're all going through is this samadhi and the other is vipassana. Insight. Both develop hand in hand. They both work together. It's not that you can't do any wisdom work until you perfect samadhi and then finally you you do all this great wisdom work. You've already used wisdom. For example, to even notice that the many preoccupations that the mind has, that there's a futility in at least some of it, and to begin to notice that the breath, the simple endeavor of just breathing consciously, learning to do that, that it has real value, that's, that's some wisdom. You've just learned something. Understanding that there's some point to going through this strange practice that we all submit ourselves to here has a point to it. So that's wisdom already. And then there are other kinds of wisdom that require a a steadiness of mind that is uncommon. It's something that can be developed, and we're doing that. And in the process of developing it, it can be used to, in the first instance, examine our suffering. That's a large part of what we do. Only now, the mind is equipped to do it. It's fit to look into itself. We may have as an ideal self-understanding and self-knowledge. Most people do. Most universities, perhaps all of them, have some, something like that on some hall, the walls of some hall, over the entrance. But if the mind is so shaky, wild, fragile, changeable, unreliable, how can it look into its deepest fears, its deepest loneliness, its deepest anger, how can it do that in any way that has some, some realistic outcome, that brings with it some real understanding and with the understanding freedom, a letting go, real letting go, not pushing away? Let me put it this way. Oh. When I, some years ago, when I first start, experienced some, uh, for me, relative to what I knew, uh, dramatic happiness and peace and joy from just the same practice you're doing, it also struck me as hilarious. Because what I, because the teachers were talking somewhat the way I'm speaking, getting me ready for vipassana and looking into dukkha, suffering and so forth, seeing impermanence and no self and what not. But I realized, oh, I get it. I'm trying to get happy enough so that I can look into my suffering. See, unless the mind can gladden itself enough, it's not going to be able to really take a look at all those things that we know are the problem, but we can't seem to really do it. So some kind of strange shell game, you know, sort of we generate a certain kind of happiness 
in, in having the mind be so steady. And then we turn that, it's all the mind, it's all the same mind, and then we turn it on its problems, having developed a modicum of fulfillment. And now we have a fighting chance. We can look, fear comes up and we can see it, it's fear. We don't have to be terrified of fear. It's fear. Okay, fear is here. It's workable. Same with loneliness, boredom, anger, and so forth. An image that helped me some years ago about this whole process that we're engaged in, that we've started Friday night and that we're doing now, is watching a dog at a friend's home run after a bone over and over. The person would throw the bone, the master would throw the bone, the dog would run after it, bring it back, throw the bone. Of course, now it wasn't a real bone, just plastic. Not even any meat, just meat colored onto it, painted onto it. <laughs> what a jip. And at a certain point, watching this with disbelief, you know, sometimes when you're innocent, you have those moments when beginner's mind that Narayan mentioned, where you just see what's right in front of you because you have, you're there, you're present. You say, look at that, isn't that incredible? This dog just goes after that over and over and over again. And what is it really getting? It's getting something, some attention, but look at that bone, there's absolutely really nothing there. There's no nourishment there. I have never seen this, but I understand that some dogs finally bite them themselves and the blood they get is their own. From, from these bones that at a certain point have no meat. And it became so obvious that our mind is a lot like that. We have doggy mind. Mind throws up any old thing and there we go, running after it again. Remember that relationship you were in 25 years ago? That weekend when they said they went skiing but they didn't go skiing, they were run after that one. Bring it back, suffer a little bit. Good, good doggy. <laughs> Here's another one. What's going to happen on your summer vacation in July? But, you know, it's now, what is it, Feb March? Yeah, but, you know. When you retire, Social Security, are you going to have enough? How old are you? Well, I'm a teenager, I'm in high school. But my parents told me I should think about my retirement. Now, from what I've read, not having witnessed this in the wild myself, lions don't run after any bones. In other words, you throw something like that. Little doggies do that. Doggy mind runs after bones and can be toyed with that way. Lions just sit there and they kind of look at you as if like you're a jerk. <laughs> they just look at where is that coming from? They're looking at the source. They're not interested in running after that bone and getting it and huffing and puffing and bringing it right back to you. Can you imagine a lion doing that? It would be a dog if it did that. So we're learning to trade in doggy mind for lion mind. Just station our attention to really station it there and all the different things, at least during the time that we're doing this practice. Please understand, there is a place for thinking, all kinds of thinking, and it's th thought itself is quite a gift. Now, as we more and more become stable, as we become more of a lion, as we are not so vulnerable to everything that the mind throws up, falling for everything, either grasping at it or pushing it away, believing it, what starts to happen is the mind becomes very, very calm and very, very peaceful, as mentioned. And then that itself becomes the bone. And that's an interesting sta stage in practice. You get so happy just sitting there breathing away that you never want to investigate. You don't want to look into your, you know, the teachers will say, okay, you know, it's time to come out of your little house now do some vipassana, some insight work, start seeing all that craving and attachment and suffering and agony that you said you came here to let go of. Oh, no, I'm just so happy breathing away here. 
And it can become quite an attachment. Now, probably right now, that isn't our problem. We don't have to worry about that. <laughs> At least I said one true thing tonight. Got some what we call feedback. In addition to this practice of coming back to the breathing over and over again, enabling that to be harmonious, understanding that that is the practice so that you can learn to even enjoy it, to just come back and breathe. And in doing that, we have a new option that we didn't have before we began to develop this skill. You find yourself caught in something. A few people in the discussion group reported being caught. You know, something happens. Someone does or says something, or the bells don't ring, or they don't ring loud enough. And suddenly the mind spews forth all kinds of disappointment, anger, abandonment, etc., now, you can get caught in all that, or you can, you now have a new option. Finally, it's good to look at it, but sometimes we can't. It's too strong. And so just now, it's fine to turn to the breath. You have an option you didn't have before. You don't have to just always get stuck with what the mind is up to. You can now have an option of, oh, you switch from a feeling of abandonment to the breathing. You know, I want to begin another theme. I think uh, we'll go into it more as the retreat unfolds. But to develop this kind of serenity of mind, the basic practice is, I think, pretty clear. We've laid it out and you're doing it. You have to understand that everything we're doing here pretty much, is designed to help you with it. So that there's one, the obvious practice of coming back to the breath. But there are many other things that we're doing that help it, including coming back to the breath not only during the sitting. For example, the silence. Even though the silence is outer silence, and if we all have agreed to be silent, except under certain conditions, and inside, the mind can be chattering away at a ferocious level. The outer silence really begins to contribute to, to finally the inner silence. Not reading any books. I strongly encourage you not to read while you're here. Not even Dharma books. Especially not Dharma books. <laughs> Nothing. You're stuck with yourself. That's, that's what this is about. If you can, don't write. Don't fill up a notebook with your insights. Don't write letters and postcards. If you can, don't make any phone calls. Just keep it really simple. And from moment to moment, take care of the moment. Each step when we're doing the walking. And use the breath to help you do that. For example, I know that there's been a fair amount of discomfort, even pain in the body for probably lots of us today. And at a certain point, after you've you know, worked with it a bit this way and some of the ways that have been suggested, you decide that you want to change your posture. And that's, an op- that's fine. It's nothing. Uh, you don't go to the back of the room and you're not given a pointed hat if you switch your posture. But it's a way to do it. So that let's say you want to switch over. You're sitting one way. Let's say the left foot leg is on top of the right thigh and you want to switch because it's really hurting and you've been with it as, as much as you feel you can be. It's interfering with your ability to pay attention. That's the test. You're not developing samadhi. You're developing anger or disappointment. Okay. Then switch your posture, but do it slowly being mindful of every step along the way of the movement from one bodily position to the other and stay in touch with your breath as you do that. 
So let's say if I were to do it right now, I'm breathing in and out. I'm in touch with my breathing. If you see, I'm just switching my legs. So the mindfulness, that kind of current or stream of mindfulness is still flowing. And even though the posture has changed, we've changed from one way of sitting to another, the process of staying mindful of the breathing and of what's happening, that's gone on. So there is still continuity. This, um, uh, the bell. Are you remembering to do it? Let's say even in your room, if you hear the bell ring, you're getting dressed or undressed or just stop. Uh, this is a very old practice, very ancient practice in Asian monasteries and some, some of the temples and monasteries. The bell is called the bell of mindfulness. That is, when the bell rings, it's, it's a call. It calls out to you. It's saying, remember, wake up. And what it's designed to do is to help us come back to the moment. We often lose touch with ourselves. We lose touch with the present moment as we're off somewhere in the future or somewhere in the past. And then you hear a bell and you come back. And so please try to follow that practice. That also supplements what we're doing when we're working in the sitting posture. And here's another twist, which I'll just leave you with. In Buddhist temples, the, the, the bell uh, is rung, and everyone knows that that's how you use it. And for the most part, we don't live in a Buddhist temple, though here it's like one. I mean, it is. It's, it is one. But the idea can be generalized and go beyond the literalness of the bell. Some of you know the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, where you can use red light and green light if you're driving a car. This is when we leave here. That is, every time there's a red light, which before was seen as an obstacle to you getting somewhere, now becomes like a bell, a bell of mindfulness. You can educate or re-educate yourself so that whenever the car has to come to a halt because the light is red, you come to your breathing and you sit there uh, practicing meditation rather than fuming. You can use the phone when the phone rings. You can use the buzzer that goes off in your car if you don't have the, in some cars, if you don't have the safety belt on. So many things that are repetitive can now become kinds of formal practice to help us come back to the present moment to wake up. And one here that is non-bell, which we do a lot of, is waiting. If any of you had to wait, you know, for a meal, if you've had to wait for the bathroom, to take a shower or whatever, uh, instead of pacing nervously or fuming about how long that person's taking or whatever it is that the, your mind does or rehearsing or planning, just stand and breathe. And so every time you find yourself waiting here and Soon there'll be individual interviews and you'll have to wait. Sometimes interviews go a little longer than planned and there you are out in the hall. So you can see what we're doing. We're using the breath. The more you can remember to turn to the breath, the more the breath becomes strengthened as a vehicle to take us into the present moment, to help us stay there and to help us see clearly the quality of our life in that moment. We have some silence, please.
Okay, for most of us, let's do some walking. And for those of you who are here at IMS for the first time, we have a special little clinic for you. Probably you need it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it'll be in the library with Narayan. It's optional, but it's, it's open for those people who are, this is your first visit to IMS. The rest of us, old has-beens, we have to just walk. Just do walking meditation. By the way, are the bells improving? For the water, are, are the bells being rung loud enough so you can hear them in all the walking areas? If the people who are ringing the bell, uh, bells are here, bell ringers, please uh, make sure, especially, I guess, the annex. Sometimes people are not hearing the bell. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.